Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today my guest was Domingo Guerra, and Domingo has a lot of interesting things to say about what it means to start a company outside of Silicon Valley, and also what it means to start a company inside of Silicon Valley, because he's done both. Um, he originally is from Mexico, started the company there, and then came to San Francisco to uh, grow it, and then it got it acquired as well. This is one of the first episodes I did. I did it back in San Francisco on the what are the particular stresses of creating a company outside of Silicon Valley. Uh, and now that I've been in Colombia, I have gotten a much better understanding of that as well, particularly for the Latin American um, ecosystem. I'm, I'm going to be interested in doing similar things for the African, the European, uh, the Asian, and Australian ecosystems as well about what it means to start a company in all those places, as well as the United States. I've already done a few episodes on that of places outside of Silicon Valley where people are starting companies. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. If you do, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the major podcasting platforms, and go ahead and subscribe. Uh, If you're really feeling generous, I would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review as well. And I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. My DMs are open. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, hear how these episodes are stimulating your intellectual curiosity, if at all. Uh, Hope you enjoy this one and have a great day. Thank you. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Domingo Guerra. He is the uh, previous co-founder of a startup and he raised capital, had an exit. uh, And what I'm talking to him today about is his insights into the difficulty of of starting the company outside of Silicon Valley and then compared to inside of Silicon Valley. And you have experience both, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Happy to be here, Stuart. Yeah, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So you come from Mexico originally, right? Yeah. Born and raised in Mexico, moved to Texas for college. Uh, always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So growing up in Monterrey, it's uh, north of Mexico, it's very industrial. Uh, and there people wanted to be either soccer athletes and stars or entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was terrible at sports. So for me, I was more <laughs> focused on education and work and trying to do something big there. And a lot of the biggest companies in Mexico were started in Monterrey. Huh. Uh, and, and yeah. Always been wanting to try it out, but not always thought I had the opportunity uh, available to me. Mm. And that's really interesting. I've never heard that before. That a lot of the companies that are have been started in Mexico are in Monterrey. I do know that it is a uh, industrial hub and kind of the the center of business. I would say. I mean, well, I guess there's three centers of business mm-hmm. in Mexico, right? There's Guadalajara, there's Mexico City, and then there's Monterrey. That's right. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, so you started a company there, and then uh, can you describe more about the challenges and opportunities there versus the challenges and opportunities here? Yeah, so ultimately, it's a much smaller pond, to use that analogy. So even if you started gaining some traction, uh, traction in Mexico might not be seen as adequate for traction here, uh, versus if you had traction in a huge market like the U.S., then it would satisfy the, the check mark of, of the traction of what that meant anywhere. Now, that being said, there's, I feel the, the borders or the, not just physical borders, but uh, business type of borders have been declining as it's easier to now work remotely. It's easier to serve your customers worldwide, even if you're based in Mexico. So a lot of that is very helpful for entrepreneurship in lower cost regions like Mexico. But there's still a lot of concerns from the traditional money uh, investing in a company that's abroad. Uh, And then frankly, there's different requirements from what 
uh, investors ask for of the entrepreneurs, even in Mexico, where because maybe there's less competition, uh, investors in Mexico have a lot more power than they do in the U.S. And investors in the U.S. have a lot of power already. Interesting. So from an entrepreneur perspective, we saw that a lot of times the investors were asking for more deliverables in Mexico than they would here. Uh, and they would want to take a larger percentage of the company than they would here. Uh, and, and it didn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, if you had the option to, to compete here, then I think that's the, still the best place to do so. To raise money here in San Francisco as opposed to in Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, it's created a lot of hybrid approach where people will remain the keep their R&D, keep their high cost employees in Mexico, which is a lot cheaper, but bring their executives here to be able to do sales from the US, fundraising from the US, mm -hmm. etc. So they'll have a dual uh, presence uh, so to satisfy a lot of the check marks that, that investors have here while still being able to be lean and frugal with their with their burn rates and keeping costs lower. Because I guess one of the requirements for a lot of investors here is that they invest locally or that they want to be around the founders, right? Yeah, that I mean, one is be close to the founders. It's always much easier from a communication perspective, but it's also the companies incorporated in the U.S. They know they're protected by U.S. Mm -hmm. law and, and how those companies uh, are structured. They know they're familiar with that. Uh, they don't want to invest money in a foreign company and then suddenly have that a foreign government intervene or, or shut the company down or something where they wouldn't have the same protections they would mm -hmm. here. And in your opinion, is that is that looking like more it's more going to happen in Latin America? Because there does seem to be a lot of political kind of uh, ferment or kind of things going on, particularly like in Chile, but you know, also in Colombia, there's starting to be protests in Argentina. There was a, a, a governor just got elected. I, w I wonder what your opinion on that is. Yeah, I think overall we've seen a lot of instability, uh, more so than in the past, uh, as there's been a lot of social uh, change and, and protest and new types of governments coming in. So Mexico, for example, elected very, very far left uh, president. Uh, Chile, as you mentioned, has had a lot of protests. Argentina has been pretty unstable from an economy perspective. And that usually can scare investors, but at the same time, it's also a big opportunity uh, because folks are going to be looking for better jobs, for more secure jobs. Mm -hmm. Folks are going to be willing to do more work. So it's also a good time to build companies, to hire folks that want to work on something innovative, something cool. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it can be an opportunity, uh, but it is definitely a little bit more of a risk, potentially more reward as well. Mm -hmm. And then I would love to hear your opinions, trying to start something there, starting it realizing something might be easier and then coming here and then what your the both the challenges and opportunity of San Francisco is. Well. Yeah, so we started a mobile security company focused on protecting phones, tablets, and specifically mobile apps. Uh, we saw it as a new paradigm. Folks were using computers less often and relying on their phones a lot more. And with so, they were also using a lot more sensitive information from financial transactions to health transactions to corporate secrets or mm -hmm. government secrets. Mm -hmm. Uh, we started focus on the enterprise. We saw that the U.S. and Europe and a lot of the more developed areas have very uh, structured corporate uh, entities with clear responsibilities. There's a CISO, a Chief Information Security Officer, that's ultimately going to own security budget and compliance and, and protecting the enterprise. That wasn't so much the case in Mexico, where maybe a lot of the security functions fall on the IT guy that's already overworked mm -hmm. and... They don't really have a budget. So we found that from a market perspective, our first clients were going to be in the U.S. And then when we started fundraising uh, in Mexico, 
Uh, we saw that a lot of the, maybe 20 years ago, there weren't a lot of VCs uh, or venture capital. A lot of the investments were done by large family wealth or uh, in pre- basically rich people yeah. investing in, in With big, big products. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and the when we started in 2011, there was already some VCs, but the, the VCs were still basically proxy arms to those rich families because mm-hmm. their LPs, their limited partners, were all these rich families. Mm-hmm. So when we made a pitch to a VC in Mexico, a lot of times in the room, it's not just the VCs that are managing the investment, but they would also allow some of the, the partners, the LPs, to, to come in. In the meeting itself. In the meeting itself. <laughs> uh, so that was very, very different than what we saw in the U.S. It can be good because if they get excited, then the fund can invest in you and then the LP can invest in you. They have family mm-hmm. uh, investments as well, family funds they have to manage. But at the same time, it's very, very different than in the US when you would never really need an LP and the VC says everything. Yeah. Uh, the other thing we noticed, we were we had bootstrapped for a whole year. Uh, so we learned how to keep expenses low and, and, and be very frugal and, and efficient with our spend. Uh, when we were ready to raise our Series A, the investors in Mexico wanted to write a much smaller check and they had a huge list of diligence to complete mm-hmm. versus uh, investors in the US that are more used to uh, investing in startups uh, and software startups and more used to seeing uh, the type of returns they can get, they were willing to write bigger checks uh, and much fewer hurdles to jump through. Yeah. So that was a big contrast. Obviously, being from Mexico, I wanted to raise money in Mexico, not just to be part and connected to the ecosystem, but to try and grow the ecosystem of entrepreneurship and make it easier in the future and, and do my part there. But it didn't really make financial sense or, frankly, I mean, fundraising is difficult enough as it is, and if they're adding even more roadblocks uh, when you want to do it, then it just pushed us here. Interesting. And this is something I've been going into the show about, and, and uh, you know, I talked to my previous co-founder who's Brazilian. He's running into the same thing in Brazil. It's the same type yeah. of investor situation. So I think what happens if we kind of, this is kind of the show that I want to do, is, is educate the investors here about the opportunities abroad and like really work on that. Is it necessary to be in the same place or maybe even find the investors who are more willing to go outside of the United States but uh, just don't know where to start basically? Yeah, and I think we're seeing that in two directions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Investors here are realizing that there's a lot of talent in Mexico and South America. Uh, Per capita, there's more engineers and and computer scientists graduating in Mexico than in the US. Mm. I mean, the population in Mexico is about a third. It's 100 million over instead of uh, 300 300 million. But here, folks will study a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And in Mexico, if you go to college, you're mainly going to study something more more technical or STEM. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So per capita, there's more engineers. Uh, The labor is a lot, the labor cost is smaller. Um, The talent is on par. Mm. So there's a lot of talent there they're finally getting that startup bug where growing up people would say, okay, I'm going to work for this company for life. Uh, and we haven't seen that in the U.S. for a long time, but that was still the case in Mexico. And, and really over the last five, ten years, we've seen a shift where people want to work in startups or they want to start their own startups. Mm-hmm. So the market is, is there uh, and growing and investors here are realizing it. Uh, so some of them are starting to invest in companies abroad. Some of them are starting to sit, reach out to those wealthy families and say, well, don't just invest your money with VCs in Mexico, but invest mm. your money with VCs here mm. as another way to, to kind of bridge that gap. And some are even setting up, I don't know if you call them scouts or associates or something, 
in region to be able to get more deal flow and, and access there. Uh, so that's one direction. The other direction is that families and, and LPs in Mexico are starting to try to come into the U.S. on their airport as well, either to look for investments, uh, maybe they want to invest in startups here as well, or to work with VCs here. So it's, it's bi-directional, and I think that's really going to help merge the ecosystems uh, because it gives companies abroad access to money here, companies here access to money there, mm-hmm. and the more competition among investors, the better for entrepreneurs yeah. and vice versa. Interesting. Have you have you had investors start to approach you from either Mexico or from here wanting to know, well, I guess the Mexican investors wanting to understand more about how it works here and investors here wanting to understand more about Mexico. Have you started to? Yeah. So ever since we started in 2011, I've been volunteering with a group, a nonprofit that brings uh, either entrepreneurs or investors from Mexico, Peru, Chile, et cetera, to Silicon Valley, uh, really trying to open their eyes to what's possible. So they'll tour Facebook and Google and a lot of these tech giants now that started with a small check Mm. and say, you don't have to write a huge investment check like the traditional investments in Latin America that you were maybe opening a factory or some some sort of really large enterprise. You can start with lots of smaller checks and eventually get some of these big companies. And because the key understanding, I think, that Silicon Valley figured out that the rest of the world hasn't really figured out yet is that you can invest in 10 companies, expect nine of them to lose, and you invest in that one that will make all the other ones worth it, basically. And has that, in your in these trips, are they explaining that a little bit as well? Yeah, absolutely. So they cover that in terms of the, of the types of returns that you can get from just hitting one correctly. But they also talk about the asset allocation. Mm-hmm. If it's a startup company, the costs to run the company, the costs to grow the company, are much lower. And it's okay if it fails because you don't have a lot of capital equipment or factories or anything. You can pivot and you can have, even a small failure is okay. That investment is not completely gone. There's still more stuff you can do. And then worst case, you could even do like an acquit hire. So mm. it's not the same type of risk as they were when they were trying to open a factory and maybe it works or maybe it doesn't work or something that's really capital intensive or, or, or physical hardware type companies as well. But that's really interesting because that's even in Silicon Valley in the 1960s and 1970s, there was that capital requirement for kind of creating a huge company mm-hmm. uh, and that the, those venture capitalists did lose a lot of money, uh, but they made that one investment in, you know, Intel or whatever that just like skyrocketed. But then that what you just mentioned is a is a product of, I would say, nine, from 97 until now, basically, of like these software companies that you don't need to put a lot of money in. You can kind of just catch this wave of like Facebook, like Facebook was, you know, they bought a lot of servers and mm-hmm. they created their own architecture and stuff like that. But it really what like didn't take that much money except for the people, the people money. Uh, yeah. But that that's again, that's not this kind of high capital investment. And I imagine that in Latin America, vast majority of the, the, the investments have been in like a factory, like you said, or, or these kind of real estate deals where you're really investing mm-hmm. a lot in the infrastructure itself. Yeah. And, and I think that's a great analogy from the 70s here, too, because even then, even if you had the same win rate, one in 100, mm-hmm. if it took a lot of capital, only a certain number of investors could participate. But now that you can raise funding in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands for a company to see if it's going to succeed or not, a lot more investors can participate. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to be a huge 
family wealth fund in, in Mexico, for example, to be able to be an investor, you can be an investor with just some 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 capital, but not prohibitively where where you would not you would, you don't have maybe generational wealth to to yeah. go invest. It opens the door to a lot more investors, and and in turn, it, it helps grow that ecosystem as well. Interesting. Are are we starting to see a lot of people in investing in syndicates, like an angelist from Mexico as well? Is that starting? To yeah, absolutely. So we've seen uh, some of those smaller angel type investors coming and participating here at events like Y Combinator or Five Hundred Startups or something, and they go to those pitch days, and that was ama- amazing as well. That even a small fund of sub $10 million pooled uh, to invest uh, would still get so much demand from startups pitching them where in a year they would hear 500, 600 pitches. Uh, and, and again, that just shows you just how much hunger there is for capital, whether you're in the US or in Mexico and, and from so many startups looking for funding uh, that they'll go talk to big funds, small funds, anywhere in between. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to understand more from you about uh, because I, I was talking to another friend of mine from Mexico who's also involved in the startup scene, particularly in Guadalajara, mm-hmm. and he talks about that the Mexican government actually invested a whole bunch of money, uh, not in, not for equity, but just investing a lot of money into co-working, into um, accelerators, into kind of this hype machine, got everybody excited, uh, and then kind of left, yeah. and, and it didn't do anything. It's, it's very painful when a lot of these investments in order to work have to be sustained mm. um, and when the government in Mexico it's it's a six-year election cycle with no re-election uh, so one presidency to the next could change their stance uh, completely uh, and it was really frustrating because there were a lot of investments done for the you know them the Instituto Nacional del Emprendedor uh, an entrepreneur national uh, fund uh, it would match funds for VCs uh, to a certain amount, so it lowered the risk. It would invest in, in co-working spots and infrastructure uh, and loan programs, etc. Uh, I got to participate in one of the events a few years ago. So some of the Mexican entrepreneurs in the U.S. flew in. Mm-hmm. Uh, entrepreneurs that live in Mexico were there. We got to meet the then president. We got to do like a little pitch show and just talk about our, our investments. They were also investing in consulates. For example, the San Francisco consulate, the San Jose Mexican consulate, so that they can reach out to local entrepreneurs here, entrepreneurs here that are here from Mexico and have some resources as well. Maybe have a co-working spot because it's so expensive to rent a desk in San Francisco. You could work at the consulate, for example. Oh, that's and, awesome. Yeah. And then overnight, the new president came in and said, no, 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 we're not doing any of that anymore. Uh-huh. Um, so from an industry perspective, there was a lot of industry partners that saying, yes, we want to make it easier. Uh, we want to sponsor a class, we want to sponsor an event, we want to do something. And for the industry, it also looks bad when you the government support is there and then it's not. So I think, unfortunately, it means that it, we have to rely really on the private sector to grow the ecosystem and not rely on the government because you never know what the government is going to do or not do uh, in the future and how their priorities change. It is something that I think is really important not just to grow the ecosystem so that there's more startups, but from a job creation, from a knowledge transfer, from uh, innovation uh, perspective, startups can really do a lot for a country. So if, if the government's not going to do it, then we as a private industry must do that to be able to help out. Interesting. 
and that's what I want to do for, with this show. I want to start doing more content in Spanish, and I'd love to interview you in Spanish eventually as well, to uh, and and then create because like what I see, if if that happened with there's a lot of a kind of hype that created. Uh, a lot of that times that hype is like go start a company it's going to be amazing you're gonna you're gonna mm -hmm. you know like it's mm -hmm. just gonna happen it's gonna work and like failure is great and everything like that and then people start it and then it's really difficult so I want to I want to get people kind of the truth of that which I don't think exists in Spanish is that correct or is it is my assumption that it all exists in most of it exists in English and that um, if you speak English you have access to it but if you speak Spanish you don't yeah I think there's some podcasts that are in Spanish uh but not enough. Mm. Uh, I feel that a lot of times that was the biggest hurdle of being an entrepreneur from abroad is the lack of examples that you could relate to. Um, especially 10, 15 years ago, you would hear of entrepreneurs that built huge companies, but they had they came from a family with a lot of funds or they had special connections or, or there was something special. Mm -hmm. You couldn't just point to someone that says, hey, that guy's just like me and he did something. Mm. And that... You don't even see that everywhere in the U.S. I mean, sure, everyone's connected and you can get those resources, but a lot of folks that live uh, in, in middle of the country gravitate towards East Coast, so, so Boston and New York, maybe south to Austin or out west to the Silicon Valley. But at least it's in the same language. At least you can participate remotely and, and, and learn about it. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's hard to raise money if you're in the middle of the country, but you can at least know where to go whereas in, in Mexico that wasn't the case but that is probably the single thing that's the biggest advantage of physically being in the Bay Area is just access to that network folks maybe they won't talk about all the hard stuff in a podcast as often <laughs> but they'll meet for coffee and they'll share the dirty secrets yeah. and they share hey it's not as rosy as it seems and even if you see this press release of we just did these amazing things there's still so much panic and, and, and stress, stress. Yeah. Um, and then they'll talk about that in private. Uh -huh. and, and being there in person, you can experience that. Even being in the same country, being 2,000 miles away, you're not going to see that. Yeah. You're only going to see the, the good stuff. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And that's what I've noticed about coming here as well. I grew up here, uh, but then I left for a long time. And then I came back uh, and I, I started a company and I had to do that same thing where I come back and I kind of go to all these events and meet all these people. And that's the one amazing thing about here because that's accepted. Like mm -hmm. if you're an entrepreneur or founder, like you can go to one event a day and there'll be people there and there'll be investors there and you can, you can actually meet them and connect with them and talk with them and like it's open mm -hmm. and it's not open there is a there is a nuance to that because it's 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 not open because everybody is friendly. There are a lot of friendly people here. It's open because People have a the people with capital understand that anyone can hit a big one, and you don't know who is going to hit the big one. So you you're nice to everybody, you're open to everybody. Yeah. So that so yeah, that's a great point. And 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 also, I hear folks will be happy to make an introduction uh, or a connection with someone uh, because you again you never know when it's going to help. So people are more open to pay it forward and not really ask for anything in return. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've seen sometimes in the East Coast it's different saying, yeah, I can make an intro to the VC, but I want a certain percentage if you get funding. Oh, and that's unheard of here. The people would never <laughs> yeah. uh, do that. Uh, so, so even within the same country, there's different etiquette in, into these, these circles. Ultimately, you're going to guard introductions because it's your reputation. You're not going to introduce someone to an investor if you don't trust that them or their company are going to do something big or if you don't think it's a, it's a good bet. Mm -hmm. So that also 
limits so that it's not just spam everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, part of being in the ecosystem is you're thinking not just about right now, but you're thinking about yourself and your reputation in the space for a long time, not for the, for the immediate thing. The, the other aspect that I think is very helpful here beyond just the investor and startup ecosystem of actual entrepreneurs and companies is the adjacent ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe you finally start a company in Mexico, you raise capital, but then you have to go work with traditional banking mm-hmm. or traditional lawyers, mm-hmm. traditional patent lawyers, traditional whatever, incorporation mm-hmm. lawyers. There's not an ecosystem of support for startups as there is here. Where when we bootstrapped, for example, we were able to work with a law firm that specializes in startups that did deferred payment. We didn't have to pay anything until we got funding. And if we don't get funding, they don't get paid. That's their way of investing in startups without actually taking And nobody would do that in Mexico. There's No, no it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, and then same thing. If we open as a startup a regular bank account at one of the regular brick and mortar banks, you end up paying fees and, and they're not really set up for startups in mind. Whereas mm-hmm. there are financial institutions focused in startups where you can get a lot more benefits. That's not the case in Mexico either. Mm. Then working with uh, PR firms or working with any kind of vendor up and down the stack, there's a lot more folks here that are used to working with startups and will have either a special pricing or, or special benefits. That That's not the case in Mexico either. Is that starting to change in Mexico? Have you noticed any signs? That that's it changing? has changed, especially with the, the incubators and the accelerators. Uh-huh. So maybe that is something good that came out of those investments from the government, mm-hmm. is that at least if you have a high concentration of startups in a certain area, uh-huh. then at least they have more purchasing power to go and say, hey, we're a bunch of startups, we want a better internet plan, or we want a better electricity rate or, or something. Whereas individual working out of your garage you have no real benefit if you pull together, maybe you get a discount when you buy laptops or maybe you can get certain things that at least you're getting some benefit there. Interesting. And also from a from a lawyer perspective, the more companies there are working with lawyers, working with bankers, working, et cetera, it starts building out that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So it's something that has to be organic. You can't just flip okay. a switch and it's done. Yeah. Uh, but it's something that's crucial mm-hmm. that people don't think about when they just think, oh, okay, we need investors and we need entrepreneurs and then we're done. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more behind the scenes that, that make an ecosystem. That's a really interesting point because it gets to another guest. What I was saying here within the United States is that over the last 20 to 30 years, like 30 years ago, the same thing that we were talking about mm-hmm. in Mexico that doesn't quite exist in Mexico that's starting to change now in Mexico. That thing happened here about 30 to 40 years ago where it was just you go to, if you want a job for five to 10 years, you go work in a corporation, mm-hmm. you work in a big business. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like startup just wasn't a thing. But now, the culture within American business is that even if you're working at IBM, you know what a startup is and yeah. you, you kind of, you're, it's kind of cool, you know, it's like you actually want to help the startup person, whereas before you kind of, somebody starting a company would have been ignored basically because it just didn't, culturally it wasn't accepted. And so now you're starting to see that in Mexico as well. Um, and so actually that's the question, is it, what is the change right now in Mexico in terms of if you're in a big company in Mexico, are you aware that there are startups? Are you kind of like, is it acceptable to, or is it kind of cool in the same way it is here? Yeah, I think so. And, and a lot of it is driven uh, even maybe by entertainment. Uh, the, the Facebook the movies, movie, for yeah. example. Yeah. Uh, there's now a lot of movies or, or shows on, on TV where they spend on, they, they talk about entrepreneurship. Something like the Shark Tank is now entertainment in the U.S. and that's amazing, right? I mean, even 10 years ago, that wasn't the case here. In Mexico, and now in Mexico, you're starting to see those kinds of things where 
there's obviously singing competitions and talent competitions, but now you start seeing more of an ecosystem around startups. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and if there is demand from a, even if it's entertainment, then there'll, there'll be more content produced. You're also starting to see more recognition. Uh, so publications like Forbes have, Forbes Mexico, or, or different international publications that can also focus on business and entrepreneurship. Uh, you have associations uh, like startup incubators and startup schools that now have branches in Mexico as well. Uh, and that creates a lot more. And now you have in the education space as well, classes about entrepreneurship, classes of, or, or, or internship opportunities at startups as well. Mm-hmm. So even younger uh, folks that are just about to graduate have exposure to that scene as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have pitch events, uh, funding events, and, and that kind of thing at the college level as well. Uh, and, and, and all of that helps contribute to the ecosystem growth. Interesting. So I'm really excited about the growth of startups outside of Silicon Valley. Most people I've talked to kind of are like uh, really excited as well. Um, but I, I imagine that you have kind of like you can give me a more sobering take on it uh, of like what is the what is the thing that I'm missing being so excited that I'm not that I don't want to see. So I think a lot of times it's it's exciting from growing the overall pie of entrepreneurship. Uh, it's exciting about creating more opportunity and, and bringing innovation and technology uh, to, mm-hmm. to more regions in the world. Uh, the difficulty or the challenge is that. Even though they're connected online, they're not connected from a from a fabric perspective. Mm-hmm. I think the culture is more the same, mm-hmm. especially in Mexico, where we'll watch the same TV shows and listen to the same music and, and have a lot of bidirectional yeah. kind of. Yeah, stuff, it's, yeah, it's it's. I think the culture is fine, but being feeling part of the same ecosystem is not there yet. It's still very much there's an ecosystem there that's small and growing, and then there's a huge ecosystem here. And how do we feel like we're actually collaborating more than just uh, sharing some ideas. I, I think the the big thing that I would suggest for folks that are in Mexico and trying to grow it is to think bigger. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks say, oh, look, we got 10,000 downloads or we got something that might seem big if you're thinking of your local community, uh, but not big if you're comparing it to the world stage. Whereas the investors here are still looking for something that's going to take over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't care that you're the best uh, app in Monterrey or in Guadalajara. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're saying, how does this reach 7 billion people, not not 7 million people? Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that, 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 I think that's a huge goal of my show is to actually how to do that collaboration among the whole kind of global startup scene, um, uh, but particular focus on Latin America. And even Mexico itself is such an interesting place. And I've been talking a lot about this for the last few days because as we talked about the cultural, we have so many cultural connections between Mexico and the United States. Like growing up in California, it's just like, I remember the first time I heard Spanish and you know, it was like, it's just like, I know about Mexican culture from being here. I'm not, you know, I'm not Mexican myself, but, but I just have a familiarity with it. And the same thing happens mm-hmm. in Mexico. Like people have a familiarity with the United States culture in a way that in Argentina they don't, or yeah. you know, in Chile they don't, or Colombia even they don't. Um, and so, because of this cross-border connections, but then also Mexico also has those linguistic connections to the rest of the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think the co-founder of Rappi, Rappi being a Colombian yeah. startup, which w- grew very large, he actually moved to Mexico City recently mm-hmm. um, because it, it seems to me that there might be hap- something happening in terms of Mexico City as the as the kind of, as that Spanish, La- uh, Spanish-speaking Latin American hub of startups. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. And, and it's been amazing to watch. Uh, Mexico City went from 
very dangerous, uh, polluted, and and really tough to live in city in, in the 80s mm-hmm. to now really one of the top cities in the world to, to live in and, and travel through and food and culture and art and now technology and, and startups. Uh, it's always been the capital for all the big multinationals in Mexico would have their office there. But now it's becoming a capital for multinationals from all over Latin America mm-hmm. being there because it's such a great hub, because it's such a cl- short flight to the U.S., because it's such so much uh, change in terms of the quality of life is, is so amazing. So, so it's been great to watch uh, and something that, that I'm really excited and happy about. Uh, I think the, the other aspect, now that you mentioned Rappi, is you're starting to see more of these companies that started in Latin America and have global uh, size or, or, or global growth. And, and that's only going to help. Uh, the the other thing that I, I, I think is maybe been, we've seen successful companies in the past, but they weren't necessarily going after uh, something huge. That's my, my next wish, is something new that starts in Latin America. Mm-hmm. A lot of the successful companies said, well, okay, there's Uber in the US, we're going to start Uber in Mexico, and then when Uber moves here, they'll buy us. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and yeah, that can be very successful. Folks can make a lot of money, but it's not innovation. It's taking innovation and solving the local problem so that it makes it easier for them when they start to do the global expansion. But I think the next iteration or the next evolution mm-hmm. of growing that ecosystem is, is novel ideas that were born in Mexico or born in Latin America. I think that's what I'm most excited about. Because that's when you know that you're at the world stage. And that's what I'm most excited about, too. And I've been out of this for a while, for like six or seven years. I remember Peter Thiel saying that all that the rest of the world needs to do is just copy whatever Silicon Valley does and then and then and then uh, just copy it. And, yeah. and then but there's no need, there's no need or maybe even capability to create new innovation. And I remember disagreeing very much with that. I, you know, I respect him a lot and he has a lot of really important things to say, but I totally uh, disagreed with this. And I've just got onto something yesterday. I was talking to somebody who kind of led uh, Google small business uh, kind of outreach and stuff like that, and also the next billion users that would be using Google. And they, they, what he was telling me was that they have no idea, that Google has no idea how, let me see if I can explain this. So Google's first clients were here in the United States who had had the internet for at least 10 years or five to 10 years. Uh, on a computer so they were plugging in so they knew that that demographic and they spread all over western europe and 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 all over the world for those people who had traditionally connected with the computer but now for the next billion two billion internet users who are also going to be the next economic uh growth uh, as well because they're they're the young ones who are like full of that creativity and everything like that they're connecting with the internet um through their mobile phones and i don't think google understands that and then there's also this kind of cultural thing about how these people are basically entering an internet that has already been formed that has already been built basically but they're entering it in a new way and so something there's going to be a lot of kind of big companies that are going to start from that um and they're probably not going to be started in the united states because people in the united states just don't know what it is to to live to live like that it's probably going to happen somewhere else so maybe it might happen in mexico yeah that's a great point there's a there's a lot of technology leapfrogging that's going on whereas we and and we also in Mexico and here we grew up with with dial up and we learned that and then we got to experience a little bit faster and a little bit faster internet and a little bit faster computers etc. For a lot of folks now, their first internet is going to be a smartphone in their pocket. Well, that's way faster than anything else 
we grew up with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from here, it, it, it leapfrogs again to now connected devices that it's not just a computer like a smartphone, it's maybe something you're wearing or something you're interacting with uh, anywhere. Um, we're starting to see that with technology, we're starting to see that with finance and, and cryptocurrencies and a lot of the stuff that we learned over time, folks are now native to it, even if around them they didn't have that traditional infrastructure. Yeah. So I think that technology leapfrog is very exciting, but it also gives us a blind spot like you mentioned. Mm. We don't have a lot of the difficulties that those folks have because for us it's been more gradual. Uh, mm. like boiling the frog <laughs> yeah. you don't realize the water is boiling for them they had a huge problem and maybe technology comes in and immediately solves it mm. and maybe they see other things that could be solved with this new technology that we, that we don't have, have. Mm. Yeah. and yeah. that's really the long tail mm. that's billions and billions of people around the world that are experiencing that whereas we've been already so used to it that there might be a lot of things to solve that we don't even see yet interesting so I got a couple questions about your insights into Mexico right now. So I want to understand somebody from the middle class who just like hasn't had a lot of uh, interactions with technology. How are they kind of the mindset uh, approach to trusting people on the internet and then also uh, payments? Like that's the biggest thing because I talked to somebody else. I talked to a lot of people about the three kind of things that uh, Latin America is really going to need to set up. Africa is really going to need to set up and India is really going to need to set up and that's uh, infrastructure, so finances, uh, e-commerce, shipping type of stuff, mm -hmm. and then uh, education. Yeah, I think connectivity-wise, it's huge. Yeah, everyone's got a phone. Everyone's got a smartphone, pretty much. Uh, middle class, uh, and and that's that's great. But commerce-wise, they don't see the same percentage of online purchases because not everyone's got a credit card or a debit card or some sort of online payment. So still, a lot of times, there's interaction to more the physical brick and mortar where you have to go buy credits or you have to go buy tokens or you have to go yeah, buy something yeah. at a convenience store or 7-Eleven or a local bank or something and then be able to go online and then be able to do shopping. Mm. So I think uh, that's something that's preventing a lot of the type of companies that have been successful in the U.S. of monetizing their online strength uh, in Mexico and Latin America is that they have the users but not the dollars or not the pesos flowing in because not everyone has access to digital uh, payments. I think that's going to change uh, part from the private sector uh, and, and making it easier to, to do that, but maybe part from governments too, as more and more governments are starting to go into digital currencies themselves where they're able to control more of the population and, and, and look at every transaction and make sure everything gets taxed instead of people using cash uh, or coins uh, uh, to circumvent a lot of the economy. Yeah. So that's not necessarily very positive from a, a big brother freedom. type of thing yeah. and, and freedom, yeah. but it will create more access to digital uh, funds and, and digital money across the population, not just upper middle classes. Mm, interesting. So what you're saying is basically there's a the, the, there's a blockage in terms of the institutions themselves that are allowing the middle class and the lower class basically to enter this this that, this. Well, just the percentage of unbanked people is yeah. still huge yeah. in Mexico as okay. compared to other uh, countries. Uh, so even though connectivity is way higher than 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 a lot of places, uh, access to internet, access to smartphones, all of that is pretty high. Mm -hmm. Access to financial services is not high. So they can't do the types of things that we can do with our phones here, like send money. And even yeah. you know, we were late to this scene here in the U.S. Like it was already actually like in India or in Africa, it actually happened 
before even China, but then now yeah, Africa yeah. leapfrogged yeah. the U.S. and this you can buy stuff with minutes. Yeah, and people can trade even without a smartphone, just a, a dummy feature phone. You could text credits, credits, yeah. and and buy and sell things. Interesting. Uh, and but here we're so used to credit cards or debit cards and points and all that that we're not there yet in terms of actual digital payments. Mm-hmm. Other countries have leapfrogged us in, yeah. in that regard, but I think that's going to change. And again. It's similar to the bi-directional comment I mentioned, where it's either governments saying slowly get rid of cash to go more digital, or companies now like Facebook announced a mm-hmm. currency, and, and, and in China, WeChat has their own currency and a lot of things yeah. where now tools that you already have, everyone's already connected. Yeah. If everyone has WhatsApp, and now WhatsApp is also your wallet, then that's another way that you can bank the unbanked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that can take a huge adoption. Yeah. So that creates a lot of opportunities for startups as well. Uh, but it, it also means that the giants can come in and, and take over that market pretty quickly. Interesting. That's really interesting. And then, so how about for you? Are you seeing a future where you ever go back and kind of start something there or? Yeah, I think so. I, I think one of the, one of the things that I was always frustrated was that I couldn't do more in Mexico. Uh, very proud to be from there. Very happy, willing to help out. I want to ha- be able to give example to folks that I never had examples of. Mm. Uh, which, which is why I love to participate in, in this kind of podcast and, and events, both here and in Mexico. But also realizing that there's still a gap. I think the hybrid approach is going to be the, the healthiest one, mm-hmm. where we can have a presence there, we can start hiring more folks, we can have uh, impact there mm-hmm. uh, in, in the local economies and also leverage the amazing talent there uh, and start making inroads into more of the service providers, et cetera, while still having a presence here, which sometimes means easier access to capital. Mm. Uh, I, I think that's an approach that works well. Uh, and, I, and I think that maybe in the future, there's going to be advantages to being maybe only there. Maybe investors there are going to be more rewarding to entrepreneurs that are based there than entrepreneurs that are based over here. Maybe the tables will, will turn from that perspective yeah, too. But that's good. That's going to be a future step. And so that I think that's a very good point, which is that in the, in the medium, short to medium term, uh, building a hybrid model where you where capital kind of comes from here and education comes from here to the capital over there as well. Uh, but I think, it, and this is what I want to do with the show as well, is like really find out what people are doing there and then bridge the, help them bridge the gap to investors here as well, yep. first through the show and then, and then, and then kind of more, more, more kind of community events type of Yeah, stuff. and I think that's one of the few, I, I would say, regrets or opportunities from my first uh, startup is we didn't really build a presence in Mexico. Mm-hmm. We saw the roadblocks and we said, okay, let's just do it here instead of pushing through and, and, and fighting more for it. Uh, to put things in perspective, we probably could have hired three or four times more engineers there than we could here. Mm. Uh, and I wouldn't build the whole team over there maybe, but maybe start growing a team uh, earlier and, and, and then having a, a hybrid team as well. Well, so that gets into a question that I've been having a lot of conversations about as well as the remote work aspect of it, because in order to do that, I'd imagine you'd have to do a remote, right? Yeah, but I think now with technology, you'd notice fewer challenges there. Uh, where it's not just dialing into a call, it's, it's now doing video conferencing and having enough latency where you don't have audio issues or video issues, mm-hmm. doing your stand-up meetings like that, mm-hmm. doing cross-team. Uh, Mexico and the U.S. are pretty much the same time zone, so you won't get a lot of efficiencies there. But now that we have teams all over the world, uh, we're able to work 24-7 on issues. And that's something that, if done right, it can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. 
it used to be very difficult where you had to throw something over the fence to India or to China and, and you didn't have the same communication or culture or the same uh, if it was done over email or over the phone. But now that it's over the over video, now that it's on Slack mm -hmm. or constant collaborate, uh, collaboration, I think it becomes a lot easier. And especially with Mexico, that's the same culture. I yeah. mean, you have the engineers here, the engineers there. They get along. They understand each other. Uh, it's very easy to work together. Yeah, and they're in the same time zone and stuff. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and that's, I think, a really huge reason why, because it's not only the technology that's opening up this remote work piece, but it's also the experience and education that's happening through people doing it. You know, it's kind of like trial by error where people are just having more experience doing remote work. So, and that is spreading basically, yeah. yeah. And just like people here are very successful now working from home, mm -hmm. home could be anywhere. Yeah. So I think it's, it's not just startups, it's big companies that are doing the telecommuting. It's more accepted. There's less taboo about it. And, and I think that opens a lot of opportunities for startups that are able to do that hybrid approach. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So remote work and then, um, that seems cool. So for the last couple of minutes, I usually, I'm starting to ask this one question. If there's one question that I haven't asked you, but I should have asked you about the rise of startups outside of uh, Silicon Valley, what would it be? Yeah, I, I think overall, it's it's about feeling that, that you can do it. Um, so much of entrepreneurship is not not the the skills you have, but the support network you have around you. It's, there's going to be challenges, it's going to be difficult, but if you have someone to, to share with or someone to learn from or someone to just listen, it can make a big difference. Um, it's hard as a founder and you can't always go to your employees and, and share all your concerns because you don't want to freak them out. And I don't want to go home and, and tell my wife everything because I'm going to freak her out and it's better to just have me stress and not two of them. <laughs> two of us. Uh, but if you can meet with other founders and have just other founders to just share a lunch with, share a coffee with, share some drinks with, say what's going well, what's not going well, help each other, keep each other accountable, saying, hey, you, a month ago or three months ago, you said you were gonna do this, were you able to do it? That ecosystem can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not learning a lot of the tactical stuff necessarily, which you can pick up from a message board or from reading a book or something, mm -hmm. just that being able to, to share and interact is very helpful. And, and that's something that should be emphasized in, in Mexico as well. Not just, mm -hmm. here's a pitch competition, and here's an investor, and here's someone. But here's other fellow founders. They might be your competition in the marketplace, but they don't have to be your competition in, in, in real life in the sense that you could still help each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's a lot of benefits there that people don't talk about. Interesting. So that gives me an idea of basically setting that up on a global scale and then mediating it remotely. Because I've started to do this with other people. I have a friend who actually was on the show, became a friend after we, we, we after I interviewed him, uh, and he's in India, and now we've set up a monthly recurring meeting where we're doing that, exactly that. But it's happening on the phone, and I wonder if I could organize this for the kind of global entrepreneurship community outside of Silicon Valley to kind of build those support networks, I think. Yeah, I think so. And having a place to ask questions uh, is huge, but also having a place to be be able to post comments or questions anonymously can be helpful too. Uh, a lot of times, for example, you might be asking about, hey, has anyone worked with this investor? And no one's going to publicly say, oh man, yeah, run away from them. <laughs> Everyone says, yeah, yeah, whatever, it's good. But if you're able to have a message board or some sort of communication or, or framework where there's a uh, 
more of confidentiality or, or privacy as to who's posting it to still be able to be honest, yeah. I think could be very helpful. Interesting. I wonder if that exists where people can create their own groups that are anonymous. I've seen that in English, but not, not, in, not okay. in Spanish. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And how can people find out more about you? Ah, I'm on Twitter at Sunday War, which is Domingo Vera uh, in English. Uh -huh. uh, and, and happy to connect with anyone and, and share what we've learned. So how do you spell that? Domingo Guerra? Domingo Guerra, D-O-M-I-N-G-O-G-U-E-R-R-A. And Twitter is Sunday War. Sunday War. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Domingo Guerra. Uh, you can always find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. My DMs are open. I'd love to hear from you about what the show means to you, what, what this content has done for you intellectually, spiritually, uh, emotionally, whatever. I'd love to hear about it. So please send me a DM at Twitter on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. DMs are open. And also, if you want, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and go ahead and leave a review. Um, it'd be extremely helpful for me. And uh, don't forget to subscribe as well. Have a great day.